Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. On this episode, I talked to Eric Sandy about his piece for us entitled When Disaster Strikes on John Mualem's This Is Chance, um, which is about um, a journalist named Jeannie Chance who was able to hold together the city of Anchorage in 1964 through her radio journalism um, because there was a huge earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska in 1964 that lasted for four and a half minutes Um, and John Mualem in this book is basically through thousands of you know pages and like interviews and documents is sort of telling the story of what happened then and what this woman Jamie Chance did in order to provide calm and also get the message out to the rest of the world that what was happening. And he does a good job, according to Eric, of conveying that immediate sense of like terror and panic, but also kind of like coming together and helping one another. So, uh, and then Eric um, works for the Cannabis Business Times. He's the website editor um, and he's a Cleveland Scene alum. Now a contributing writer to CRB, and to loop back, John Muellen has been a frequent um, contributor to New York Times Magazine and writes a lot about the intersection of humans and animals. Hopefully you enjoy the show. Let's get down to it. I'm here on a beautiful Saturday on April 18th with, uh, I hope I can say acquaintance and digital friend, uh, Eric Sandy, his uh makes his return to the podcast after a year and two months. Um, another, another Cleveland scene alum. Um, uh, <laughs> working now as uh, the on- online editor for uh, the Cannabis Business Times. Lives on the w- near west side of Cleveland. And he's written for us. This is like your third piece you've written for us. Um, titled When Disaster Strikes on John Mualem's This Is Chant. And like the voice that held that everything together, something like that. Yeah, the, the shaking of an all-American city, a voice that held it together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'd say that this piece exists in a lineage of, you know, it's like the third of third piece um, we've we, we've put out that have to do kind of like directly but indirectly with uh, the coronavirus epidemic, um, in terms of like panicking and trying to like keep everything together. We had this guy Eric J. Betts come on and talk about voices from Chernobyl last week, Lana Alexievich, um, and Panic. We had Tony Masterbrateo wrote about Peter Sloterdijk's theory of uh, populations and how they withstand stress and, and things like this. And now we have you on talking about this 1964 um, disaster in Alaska where there was a, the highest recorded um, on the Richter scale earthquake in American history. Um, ever or at the time? I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I believe it is um, ever still in terms of the U.S. Uh, it's certainly up there in uh, in global global records. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sure. So we'll get to Alaska and uh, where they were at sociopolitically when when this happened, etc. Um, but I I have a list of talking points I kind of go through sure what is the main contention of your piece so um 
the main point that I was trying to get across is that uh, this book came out on March 24. Um, you know, it's been six years in the making and it comes out in the, it's hard to sort of place ourselves in this current crisis, but I guess you might call it in the early days of what the U.S. has been going through in terms of the coronavirus outbreak. And so um, being familiar with John Muallam's work and at least having a, a grip on the book before it came out, it seemed pretty auspicious. Uh, it seemed um, like there might be a lot of lessons that could be packed into this book that speak to some universal themes about history and uh, disaster and crisis, and certainly to the specific moment we're going through. Um, as I wrote in the piece, you know, that's an imperfect connection. Uh, John Wellham, A, was writing about uh, a natural disaster that is contained in just a very short window of time. Uh, and he also, you know, the book was done before uh, the pandemic began so that the two really shouldn't be conflated but there are some themes and uh the main theme that i wanted to get into was uh what it's like to be in the middle of a disaster or in the middle of a crisis where suddenly the present is heightened the past begins to change very quickly and the future which is always uncertain uh grows extremely vague and extremely uncertain and can open the door to a very uh, positive future where communities can rebuild, come together. We can get into some of those topics. It can also uh, open the door to a very grim future, uh, which you know you don't have to look too far online or on on TV to to find uh, foreshadowing there. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think the the natural disaster thing it's obviously a through line. Yeah, and you know normally you kind of like would end something like this with a conclusion, but just to support your statement, you wrote um, late on in your piece, um, as governments in 2020 have worked up stimulus packages and raised to remove economic barriers for the working class, it's immediately clear how flimsy our social and political pretenses really are. The awesome inequality of our capitalist structures revealed naked and hostile and especially vulnerable. We can see a new way of living, even as it's forcing us to feel pain. The pandemic rages on, but if we remain together in the present, we can see our daily lives in greater clarity before history comes crashing back to swallow us all, which is kind of grim, but you do see that glimpse of like a, a better future or something like this. And Tony in that piece was talking about how like art is a way to gain that sort of distance um, that sort of clarity, but you're arguing that like the disaster itself is what gives the clarity um, immediately uh, rather than stepping back because it you're yeah you're forced back from the normal or something like that it is I think uh, it heightens the present in very interesting ways, and just a few very brief examples I would give would be um, the very act of like ordering dinner like takeout dinner becomes uh an act of um like an overt act of supporting your local community supporting small businesses uh cherishing this meal that may not be possible in the future um and maybe just a few weeks earlier you might have just blown through dinner in mm -hmm. a rush or, or whatever however you want to describe it um and i think it really draws into high high contrast uh our relationship with um, neighbors, uh, landlords, 
the mayor. Um, so it really heightens the small scale of life that you know, it tends to fly by pretty fast um, outside of a context like a crisis. Yeah. And before I move on to asking about who John Mualam is, that strikes me that when you have to transition from one state of life to another, you can't, I, I don't know, you probably heard the term fake it till you make it, but like there's, I've noticed kind of like a performative, almost like on stage aspect to how we're dealing with things. Like when I go to order food at like corner 11, like, uh, bowl like poke bowls there are like lines and like there are things you can't lines you can't cross it's like a game or something like it's um you have to, we're like performing a new way of being that hopefully doesn't revert back to like the status quo um but but yeah i i think there's like a performative element to all of this there um, is uh, but that's getting a little off track that's well, just um, yeah it is interesting to see. It's sort of exaggerated, you know, that you, know, you see a lot of X's on the floor, where you can stand. Yeah. There's a bit of stigma that's um, rising. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. I don't know. So um, who is John Willem and how did you come across him? Yeah, so, uh, you know, my fellow uh, scene alums and, and the scene staff today uh, is will be familiar with um, the fact that I would sort of routinely champion the latest John Mualem feature uh, whenever it would come out over the last, uh, you know, almost, almost 10 years really at this point. Um, he's a, an at-large writer for the New York Times Magazine. Uh, his work has appeared in, in other magazines as well, but mostly in the New York Times Magazine. Um, and he's written often about, um, first, animals and our relationship to animals to endangered species, to the conservation movement um, at large. Um, I first stumbled into his work, I believe it was in 2012. Um, he had written a piece that I highly recommend to everybody tuning in called What's a Monkey to Do in Tampa? And it's about uh, a wild monkey who um, had, you know, was sort of running around loose uh, in Tampa, I believe, um, right around the time of the, uh, the RNC in Tampa that summer. And so he, he connected um, sort of uh, this interesting, almost libertarian streak of people who were rooting for the monkey, and feeding this monkey, and really putting out signs and everything, and opposing the local... Uh, I can't remember if it was local or state, but the, the government's attempts to <laughs> sort of trap the monkey and you know, take it to a wildlife place. Uh, so he wrote about this interesting libertarian thing that was brewing ahead of the RNC. And it was, in my opinion, it's a fantastic feature. It helped me think a lot about um, magazine feature structure and paragraph structure and, and things that I would go on to do quite often in, in scene yeah. in terms of how I, how I wrote my pieces. I, I uh, guess... I guess the centrist view on that is to capture the monkey and rename the baseball team the Tampa, Tampa Bay Monkeys or something and have it right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just uh, appeal to uh, to the chance to, you know, make some money off the monkey and everyone can wear their hats. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think yeah, always whenever you're watching ESPN, it's like a squirrel runs on the field or yeah. it's not, not dissimilar to, like, to when a streaker in soccer runs on the field. That's a different different stories people love that though i mean they I love, love that uh, shit. Yeah. yeah there was this one guy this is off topic but like uh tottenham hotspur were playing west ham in like 2014 right 
And this one dude, Tottenham has a free kick outside the 25-yard box so they can shoot on goal. This guy just runs on the field and just takes the kick. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like a glitch in, uh, in reality when, when you're thinking. Yeah, it's all interrupted. That's it's great. great. The hero. Um, it's so, my, it's yeah. To heaven, man. Yeah. Yeah, great album. Okay, Very so... Good. So, um, so anyway, uh, you know, John Muellen, he kept writing a lot of these features. He wrote a book called Wild Ones uh, about our relationship with um, uh, sort of how we get along with animals in, in America, uh, broken up into three sections, three different animals, uh, really good book, and a bunch of other longer features. Um, what he has been doing in recent years, though, is working on this uh, this. Um, you would almost compare it to an earthquake, really, but the uh, the sudden shaking of the present moment. And uh, I point to two features in in my uh, Cleveland Review of Books piece. Uh, he wrote about the uh, the wildfires in Paradise, California, um, and he wrote about a trip that he and two buddies took up into Alaska. That uh, you know, it's a very long piece. It's more of a personal piece. Uh, where everything goes wrong, basically, just put it that way. Uh, and and in both of those pieces, you have nature, and it's um, just uh, you know bold, neutral exertion coming in on the present moment and upending how how we're living. Uh, the Paradise California piece is is really good because that one, for obvious reasons, allows him to get into broader climate change arguments. And much like he does with the earthquake, or with This Is Chance, the book about the earthquake, get into how this is affecting the past and the future and how we're living. Um, so he's gotten into this interesting, like, ontological space in the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, again, my understanding is he's spent the last six years sort of traveling up to Anchorage to work on This Is Chance. Uh, and it's, um, uh, you know, he, he had done a couple other yeah he lives in seattle now i saw so yeah um so let's get into the alaska disaster a little bit or i guess we've already established that what like what it was like in principle but how how was this earthquake uh, like it happened on a good friday in 1964 yeah um what from what from your readings what what was the response um, by the people to like, what was happening and what like m- materially was happening. I was reading that, you know, streets were cracking and breaking. Like wh- what was in like materially what was going on both like um, response wise and, you know, wreckage wise. Yeah. Um, so Mualem does a great job of describing uh, that evening, that Friday evening when the earthquake strikes and it lasts for about four and a half minutes. And, um, he sort of, you know, drops the reader in at, at certain points across the city, but really focuses on the, the title character, Jeannie Chance, this K-E-N-I broadcaster. Yep. And she, uh, yeah, she was driving into town um, with her son when the quake strikes. And four and a half minutes, you know, you, we could sit here and, uh, and time it out. It, that's a long amount of time. Like John Cage's form or whatever. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's... Um, you know, he even writes at a certain point that it was just long enough for 
uh, Anchorage residents to begin to doubt that it would ever stop. And uh, yeah. which is a pretty interesting, in my opinion, uh, parallel to, to things going on today. Um, but yes, yeah, streets were cracking. Whole sections of the town were dropped about 10 or 15 feet. Mm. Um, almost neatly. So you could sort of look down into this new chasm and see, you know, a full row of buildings. Um, a lot of photos available online. Were there casualties or? Uh, there were, but it wasn't immediately um, known. So the first place that, uh, that New Alms drops us at where Jeannie chances is outside uh, the new JCPenney building, which itself is sort of a sign of of Anchorage slowly coming around to uh, the mid 20th century and, and big business. Um, and in Alaska, that's a great, right. band name. great band name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, big chunks of, of the building are collapsing. Um, and right away, Jeannie chance runs into, I believe it's like a car that's been crushed and people are um, trying to rescue this, person who's inside this car. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there's widespread disaster all over the greater Anchorage area, but, um, you know, Jeannie and each individual presumably believes that it's only this little, uh, you know, this little, uh, earthquake that hit. this isn't super unusual. This situation with the car seems pretty bad, but uh, I'm sure it's fine. I got to go phone this in to, uh, to the, to the radio station and, and let everybody else know that, this is happening. And of course, little does she know that it's a complete, you know, unprecedented earthquake. The disaster is, is incredibly widespread. Whole neighborhoods are, are falling off into the bay that, that uh, surrounds Anchorage. And uh, only through, you know, the community sort of rushing downtown to sort of tell each other what they've seen, does it become apparent that this is on a scale that no one has really seen before. So who is um, Chance? Uh, the first name, Jeannie? Jeannie Chance, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like what's her, um, uh, yeah, who, who, who is she? So she, uh, she was working at KNI in Anchorage. Um, she had, uh, um, you know, sort of followed her husband up to Anchorage um, for, he was looking for work, for new opportunities. Uh, you know, Alaska is right on the, the very threshold of, uh, it had just become a state. Um, and she was, you know, she's sort of painted as a, a go-getter, very savvy, very cheerful, um, willing to, to sort of put everything on the line for the story. Um, she was a great communicator. She a great know, but at the, time, at the time she started, did, she didn't realize it was as large scale as it was. Did you say that before? In the initial, you know, minutes and hours, yeah. Um, Got it. Do you think if she did know that would have affected how she went about like getting the word out or is that just a moot point? Like I'm um, just, I'm maybe it's hard to say because, um, you know, to me, one of the big differences between now and then is Jeannie Chance didn't have Twitter or Instagram. It's hard to ignore the power of social media in the coronavirus outbreak. Um, that I think you're talking about a whole different story at that point. It would be, um, you know, an interesting exercise to, to, you know, go back in time and give her the, you know, a, a smart, yeah, but it's a, it's a moot point, but any, yeah. So, I mean, so she rushes down to the public safety building where local government is gathered. 
people are sort of showing up with uh, tools and, and trying to figure out what they can do to help. And um, there's some other things that go on in those early hours, but eventually she stations herself at the public safety building and for 59 hours straight is broadcasting to um, through KENI and then the Fairbanks and Juno stations are picking it up and they're relaying it down to Seattle and Portland. And so essentially Jeannie Chance and her coworkers begin telling the entire world the story of, of what happened in Anchorage. Um, is the point to like get the word out to the entire world or is it to like help everyone stay calm? In yeah. So I think reaching the lower 48 was a, a byproduct at first. Um, but certainly uh, that helped communicate the disaster to family members who were still down. Uh, for instance, her family was in Texas. Um, but the, in, the initial point was uh, to sort of convey the news to everybody. And bit by bit, she started learning, oh, this neighborhood's in trouble. Uh, that building over there needs electricians to come by. Mm. Um, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Fisher, your son is over here. He's okay. Uh, this, this child's missing. So it was kind of both at the same time. Kind of both, yeah. yeah. Starting off with that real small scale, um, just community oriented, drop everything and, you know, these are the messages that need to get out. Things that, um, you know, in a world with cell phones, uh, a lot of that could be taken care of. So it's a very interesting portrait of, of broadcast journalism at a very specific time. But yeah, but back then there's only one channel. Now it's like, you know, is a hundred different channels, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so it's, that relates to my next point is like, what or who can do this holding together now during the coronavirus epidemic? Um, is it like Mike DeWine? Is it Trump? Yeah. Like, who, like who is, cause it seems like on the one hand you have people who, you know, want to, calm everyone down by like getting them back to work. There's, there's, there's the coronavirus itself, you know, there's the, uh, there's like the sickness that comes with it, but then there's like the, the panic about like, where am I going to get back to work? Or like, I literally am not going to go back to work cause I'll still get coronavirus cause I work at a restaurant. Like I, I'm not going to go to work on May 1st. Like, yeah. I, I, like what can do this function now, especially given all these plain dealer people like ginger chris being cut and literally there being like a memo i think that sam posted this on twitter sam allard that the staff working for whatever the hell regional company that bought the plane dealer i don't know is not allowed to write about cleveland like what can hold the voice to what can hold us all together like <laughs> no it's it's interesting because um you know already uh and I sort of knew this writing the piece. I mean, things are already different now. If you read the story on April 18th or 19th, um, the context is a little different from when I wrote it. Um, the, the big protest movement, the big backlash, uh, all the liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia rhetoric from, from Trump is creating a very contentious and very interesting side story. Maybe not even a side story. Maybe it's the story. Um, on some level. Uh, so to answer your question about, you know, whether there are sort of present day corollaries here. I mean, in my piece, I wrote that, yeah, it kind of is uh, the governor DeWine, the 2 p.m. briefings, uh, if only because the, I mean, 
they are a universal, and at least in Ohio, a universal point of reference. Everybody knows yeah. when it is, what it is, what we're supposed to draw from these briefings. And you have reporters, of course, I mentioned in my piece, Ginger Christ, as a plain dealer reporter, that's uh, already, um, you know, outdated information, very sadly, very unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but she, I, I called out Amanda Garrett and Andy Chow as well. You have reporters and just, you know, people at home who are conveying the DeWine briefings to their little, um, not little, but their concentrated audiences. Yeah. And um, that to me was the, the uh, you know, comparison point. Um, I, I think the challenge now is like, to go a little bit off the, off the, off the beaten track, like you can't trust like DeWine and people, like you can trust them to like hold things together during the crisis perhaps. But I think you really have to strongly form micro communities who like are on the same page looking at the like the the like the, the destruction like the deconstruction of like the absurdity of late capitalism or whatever you want to call it like of what the destruction like um reveals that to be you have to have like a small group of people that is open to more people focused on that light on making that happen. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like DeWine holds things together, but you need to start on like a small scale that's like open in order to make, not just hold things together, but to like hold yourselves, um, tether yourselves towards a new future. Um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's why I think the, the, it's an imperfect connection to the 1964 earthquake because this crisis is still ongoing and it involves, um, you know, a much more, like a, a greater sense of, uh, there is going to be a fundamental shift in, in, how, we, in how we relate to one another after this. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine's press conferences are helpful and even comforting to a lot of people, but that's not, you know, not entirely setting the stage for what's to come. I think you see a lot of this in, how small businesses are are either teaming up or reaching out to neighbors um, on a very local level or even using the postal service to get things to people. Um, you see it in uh, apartment buildings where you have many families living together, keeping distance from one another on one hand, but also either going to pick up groceries for each other or making sure that common surfaces are sanitized things like that. You even see it among employees at, at small businesses. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if we're going to need to keep a six foot distance from everybody in, in the, you know, ongoing future. But I do think there are ways that we can relate to each other that will stick. And, and that's, you know, a greater sense of empathy, um, a greater awareness of how our actions impact others. And that's not really something that you're going to glean no matter how compassionate he may be on these press conferences, that's not something that DeWine is, is doing. Yeah, yeah. He's playing the state actor, and that's fine. But I think my pet theory about all this is, okay, so as someone coming from a philosophy background, there's this one philosopher named Spinoza who has a theory that God is nature. And the basis, like the fundamental principle of that is that everything is one substance. Like everything is the same substance. Mm -hmm. like neoliberal capitalism or whatever constructs these like individuals that are isolated from each other 
the destruction of something like the Alaska disaster or like, you know, the widespread unrest of COVID-19, like the good thing that comes from, like, is that maybe we do recognize in the other ourselves and we do end up helping each other. Like maybe Hobbes is wrong, you know? Like you mentioned that there's even like, yeah, like this coming together and sort of glee and like doing stuff for others. Like, I don't want to like make it like a Christian or like religious thing, but it's like, I've personally like, I've, I've never, I've been doing as much manual labor as I, I've done like, for a long time. Um, and it's been like fun, like clearing ways for people to get things done. And like, there are just roadblocks that are material or immaterial. Um, and just like keeping the ball moving, you know, it just, I, I've been having a really good time during this crisis. And that's not, that's nothing to say about, you know, the, the crisis is bad, but I, it, it has been gleeful in some ways. I don't know. Like, well, yeah, and this is where I think um, there's a lot to draw from from John Wilm's book for this present moment. He gets into it in like the, the latter third of the book where he draws on um, research from, uh, I want to make sure I get this title right, the Disaster Research Center, which at the time was housed at uh, the Ohio State University. and is now in Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry to and from, uh, you know, so these, these, these folks from the Disaster Research Center, you know, they fly up to Anchorage immediately, sort of seeing this as, you know, in some ways, their first big project. Okay, let's go see this in action, and, and how are people going to react? And uh, there's a, a preconception that there, you know, there will be mass looting, violence, uh, unrest, and in large part what they found, not only in Anchorage, but in almost every other disaster that they surveyed, um, was that the, the looting and the violence and the unrest was um, something that was uh, put out there by, by elite leaders and, and we were given warnings that, you know, these uh, other people are going to come loot our businesses and, and they're going to have guns out there and everything. Uh, what ends up happening in, in the aftermath of disasters like this is kind of what you're saying, a, a sort of heightened present moment, a shared glee in helping one another and a realization that we are all one, that we are all in this together. Yo, defend the lands, all for one, one for all. Yeah, I mean. Uh, In this together. Everyone get on one of those calf shirts. (laughs) Bring it back, 2016. Bring it back, 2016. Fuck it. Make May 1st, (laughs) January 1st. Like, seriously. I mean, if fucking, if fucking, like, Napoleon can make Rome happen again, then you know, Baker Mayfield can become a halfway good quarterback, you know? Like, I don't know. Something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the Browns can go nine and seven, you know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly, and I mean, you know, what, yeah, anything's I, I, possible. I'm going to, like, just go in a fucking mosh pit again, man. Like, a couple of years ago, I was like, no, I'm too old for this shit now. I'm, I'm over, but I want to fucking go in a mosh pit, dude. Like, uh, Yeah, I really want to go to a show and uh, – just like just, uh, just get high and, and take in some music. Oh my god! I went god. to a Death Grip show like in 2013, and I just saw a dude punch another dude in the face for no reason. <laughs> Death just, Grip. Like, yeah, it's just like, right. dude. Also, Uncut Gems, like that movie. I miss 2012. Like, yeah. 2012 was a good year too. Like, I guess that the 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 
the point of the whole thing is the title of your piece. This is chance, both chance and also there is a chance here to, um, you know, as we see, like Anchorage did recover. I don't know what direction, like left or right, or I don't know how they recovered, but they did recover. Chernobyl, they found a way. People find a way to survive things. And those who are lost, we must like remember them and, you know, honor, like it's sad, you know, like James Joyce is the dead, probably the best short story ever written in Western civilization or at least the 20th century. Yeah. But like, it's, 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 there, there is a chance. And if we play our cards, right, especially in, in Cleveland, I feel like there's a strong, I'm like Cleveland does, maybe it's like the, uh, you know, memories of like factory workers or et cetera. Like there's, it really does feel like we're all connected in Cleveland, at least. Whereas most of my New York friends are quarantined inside their apartments and feel disconnected from everyone. Sure. Whereas, like, I really feel like a connection with everyone here. You have any sure. final thoughts to say other than, you know, there's a chance? Well, yeah. I mean, I would certainly recommend the book. Um, you know, I guess the only thing I would say is that the future is always this uncertain, unknowable thing. Um, but the same goes for the present and the past. And so I would, I would hope that, that either after reading this book or after turning on the news uh, any time of the day, um, I think folks would do well to abandon the idea that, um, you know, we are, everything is fixed or that anything is fixed. Um, the, the planet... Earth is spinning around, Earth is going around the sun, not spinning, like its speed going around the sun is 30 kilometers per second. Yeah, we're flying right now. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not static, you know, like. No, and, uh, you know, to your point earlier uh, about Spinoza, you know, we are, we are all one and this is, this is all happening in just the, the blink of an eye. and. Um, there is a chance, not only right now, but any day, to go in, in a direction of, of unity and, and community or a direction of, uh, of, of fear and uh, autocracy. And um, I think right now that crossroads seems more clear and, and maybe obvious than ever before. So I'd you know, hope that folks uh, think about that. Every little action is going to build up toward you know, the next uncertain phase of, of this life. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so uh, I hope everyone's doing well, though. So it is, Yo, everybody stay yeah. safe. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric, that's a perfect way to end the show. I um, want to thank you so much for coming on and for writing the piece and just generally being a part of the, the, the journal, a friend of the journal, friend of the pod. Um, Absolutely. I, I could probably add you onto the masthead as a contributing writer, to be honest. <laughs> I'd be honored. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, let's, uh, yeah, but thanks so much for coming on, Eric. Uh, take care, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the CRB podcast. Um, just want to shout out some members of the community that we like and, um, in one way or another have crossed paths with or uh, collaborated with, um, namely Morning of Black Star, um, 
Muamin Collective, namely Alive, who thank God for him and his beats that he graciously allows us to use for our episodes. Um, and also a shout out to the local bookstores, Visible Voice, Max Backs, Logan Berries, um, to name a few. Um, yeah, and just stay safe during the epidemic, guys. Um, uh, keep your mind sharp, stay focused, and um, we'll, we'll all get through this. Um, but anyways, yeah, I hope I enjoyed you. Hope you enjoyed the show, and hopefully it brought you a little bit of light and calm during these, you know, crazy times. Bye-bye. Signing out. Do it again.